1: Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox-Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders that you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I talked with the chairwoman of the Teton County Commissioners, Natalia Macker, about living and leading in Jackson, Wyoming, one of the prettiest parts of the country. We talked about how COVID has impacted her community, why the term building back better speaks to her, and her vision for what a more equitable society post-COVID could look like. We also talked about her passion for ensuring more women are represented in government, what led to her running for office herself, and why it's so important to put yourself out there, even though you're not perfect. Natalia Macker, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thank you so much
2: for having me. It's
1: really fun to be here. I'm excited to talk to you, of course, starting with the fact that you live in one of the most beautiful places in the country, if not the planet, in Teton County, where you're a county commissioner. I would love to hear how you
2: found yourself in Jackson. I landed here with a story similar to many people that live here. I came on a vacation and then moved here to live here for a summer and work, of all things, in the arts community here locally, which is very vibrant. And then during that summer, my then- Boyfriend, now husband. We got engaged and decided we'd have our wedding here. And then we started wedding planning. And then we kind of got stuck and fell in love with a small town. Of course, the incredible landscape. And I think really we've stayed as long as we have because it's such an incredible community that's very engaged and connected and have found a lot of support and love for that.
1: I love that. And I have to say that I have been to Jackson and rafting on the Snake River, and um, it's just, uh, it's special. (laughs) So we'll do, first we'll do a a commercial for Jackson, as if it needs it.
2: (laughs) I love love it.
1: (laughs) I'd love to talk a little bit about what it's been like governing in these times and every place of the corner of the country has been affected by COVID and the recession in different ways. So just first, how has it been where you live in terms of the, both that public health issues, as well as what I assume has had to have been a, a tough economic uh, hit, particularly with tourism being so important to you, but but what's it been like for you all?
2: You know, it's been a year like none other, no surprise. And I think I feel very fortunate because our community has really done what it does best, which is rally together to take care of each other. And so in my position, while we've certainly been through many challenging conversations and had to make tough decisions, at the end of the day, it has been such an inspiration to bear witness to a community coming together to solve the problems it's facing, to be willing to leap in and make connections with people that uh, they wouldn't normally interact with, to collaborate across sectors, and to really focus on the things that we can do something about. So we have to make a really difficult health decision. It's gonna have this ramification on the community. What do we need to do to make sure that those people have what they need or that it's taken care of? And I think that piece, if as I have tried to look for silver linings wherever I can find them during this time has been really exemplary to know that new community connections have been forged that will hopefully carry us forward as we potentially address whatever challenge we face as a community that's not a pandemic, but has given us new tools and new connections and new relationships. So that part for me today At the kind of one year mark has been really tremendous to think about. On the economic side, you know, we're heading into summer, which is our busiest season, and we actually had a pretty busy summer last year, which I think made some of the tension even greater because we wanted to take care of ourselves and. Follow all the health guidance, but uh, the rest of the country in many ways still wanted to come and visit. Mm -hmm. And so, making sure that we did the best we could there to try to balance all of those different factors was truly a challenge. And I am awaiting this summer with a little bit of trepidation just because we won't probably be as far along as we all want to be, although we have a lot of optimism about it in terms of the vaccine. But also, definitely uh, need tourism to make our economy tick.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I guess it makes sense. Um, we're all looking for those outdoor spaces that we can go to. It makes sense that uh, the people have wanted to continue to come to come to your neck of the woods. We're talking not only uh, today, uh, not too far after the passage of the American rescue plan. So to, when we are talking about kind of getting to the other side of this, obviously that, um, that direct help to states and localities and counties um, obviously is going to be a big piece of this. Have you all started talking about um, how you are thinking about prioritizing funds that are coming through through the rescue plan?
2: Our staff has certainly been working on it a lot, but we are particularly interested in some of the opportunities around water and water quality and water infrastructure. That is something that we Uh, over the past few years in Teton County have started working on and dealing with some groundwater issues and drinking water issues. And also we are at the headwaters and many different interconnected water related issues. And so are very eager to find ways to deploy that and are excited for that opportunity. Although certainly wouldn't have wished for the circumstance that brought
1: it to be, yeah, absolutely. I know there are a couple other issues that you've worked on. I assume also were exasperated, like so many, with with COVID and the e- economic recession, housing, for example, affordable housing, childcare, other issues like that. Also, in your plans to think about the recovery,
2: yes, I am grateful. In in the world of silver linings, again, that what many of us have perceived to be so critical to our economic well-being and our personal well-being, which is child care, is now ever present on the tip of our tongues and part of our thinking about policy for the future. In our community, we face many of the same factors around child care that other places in the country face, which is not a surprise. And I think I'm hoping to build on some of the collaborations that have happened around our rapid response childcare needs during COVID and just getting perhaps non-traditional partners in the room to think about what we need to do to support families and support small businesses when it comes to childcare, because it's one of those places where there is not one size fits all in terms of a policy change or a formula for making it work. And we really have to problem solve with all of the people that are engaged and all of the stakeholders. And so looking ahead, I think because that advocacy and awareness is there right now from the last year that we are poised to strengthen those partnerships and take some action steps. Um, I know we're looking from the governmental side at what are capital and infrastructure investments that we might have the resources to make, and how to pair those with the private sector or the nonprofit sector to make more spaces available. In Teton County, one of our areas of need is for infant care and for that kind of birth to age two phase. And so working with some of our local partners to make some tangible steps on that, We also fortuitously had conducted a baseline inventory and needs assessment just before the onset of the pandemic. So we kind of know where we were. We have some new information about where we are now because of the pandemic. And so with the heightened awareness, I think we can take some steps in the coming years to address that while simultaneously really seeing how childcare is linked to all of those other parts of the community. And I think that's a part of the conversation that hadn't happened before, that it had certainly just been, if you're a parent of young children, which I happen to be, but if you're a parent of young children, you were in it, or if you operated daycare, you were in it. But it sometimes felt like once people's children were older, or if you owned a business and didn't have children, that like it was a black hole of memory of what that time was like and how chaotic it can be and how stressful it is when you don't know if you have stable childcare. And more importantly for us, we learned that the biggest barrier was cost and that our average costs were much higher than the federal definition of affordable for child care. And so that's a place that we're also really trying to look at ways to address, to create opportunities for parents, but to, to participate in the national work around understanding the child care ecosystem and why it doesn't necessarily work as a business model, but is uh, a community and social good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm also a mom of older kids, but it's so funny you talk about that black hole. <laughs> just, I'm just, you just get through the day, right, and figure out, you know, how you how you piece things together, that 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 does not a, a good public policy system make. I think that that's that's right. And you talked about, you know, how COVID shone a light on so many really systemic failures, frankly, on across so many issue areas that were so, you know, just laid bare uh, when, when the pandemic hit. And so it's great to hear you thinking about how to address some of those and, and, and how great that you had the needs assessment to start with. You've talked, I've, I've heard, I think even as earlier than the, than the pandemic, you, you talked a lot about equity as a priority. And I'm curious in, in kind of this context, as we think about, to use the president's phrase, building back better, you know, how you're thinking about how to create an equitable community. What, what, how, do you, how do you think about that?
2: I love that. And I love what Build Back Better evokes. I know for me and for people that I talk to, which is it kind of directly addresses the fear that I have had and that I know others have of returning to what was before because we were all just treading water and it wasn't working and we don't want to go back. And so we don't want to stay where we are, but we do want to build back better. And I think equity, particularly around healthcare and access to healthcare. And for us in our community, as we are conducting a community health needs assessment right now, which this is just the timing in our typical cycle of when we do it, but again, was another kind of, what a what a beautiful moment that this is happening now, because we are much more aware of many equity issues around uh, healthcare and access to healthcare and access to mental health services. And what that means for people of color in our community, what that means for our lower income families in our community and for a large percentage of our workforce and talking about it and addressing it in a manner that isn't just, you know, how do we make our economy as efficient as possible, but how do we make sure that everyone has what they need and are taken care of, which has been a big shift for me over the last year as we've worked together as a community to address things, that we are thinking about care work more frequently and more often and shining a light on the people, which are often women, who are doing care work. And we live in a state that has, for example, like one of the worst wage gaps, gender-based wage gaps in the nation. And so as we build back better, what are we doing to build into our systems the support for uh, access to health care And what are we doing to normalize mental health services so that everyone in our community has access to what they need and that we aren't entering it with a mind, like a scarcity mindset and a resource scarcity mindset. And so, you know, I think Build Back Better, it just, it's a very, it evokes so much emotion for me in a positive way that we can be a force for good and that government can be a force for good, and that you know we can collaborate to solve problems. And that if everyone had equitable access to healthcare, if everyone had equitable access to paid sick leave, that those kind of things might have changed some of the trajectory of the pandemic, but also have shown that everyone needs those and that everyone is susceptible to vulnerability in our communities and in our society. And so we are all actually connected and do need each other. And so it is good when there's equitable access to things like healthcare and housing, which is, you know, affordable housing is a big issue in our community, predominantly because our economy is based on tourism. And so there are more lower wage jobs. And at the same time, 97% of our county is public lands. And so there is not a great deal of land available for development. And so housing costs are very high. And we know that extreme housing and homelessness are also factors within COVID-19. And so addressing it there kind of shows us and reminds us that these are all life and death situations. And it isn't just nice to have a place to live, it's necessary. And we need to work on that, keep working on that together.
1: Absolutely, and I, and I want to come back and talk about women's issues, although I hate to say that because, it's, as you say, they're, they're everyone's issues, but I think that, you know, women having a voice at the table has been an important part, I think, of your, of your own journey, and I want to come back to that, but I, I, I want to pick up on one other topic first, which is another issue I know you guys have been looking at in your community and that we're grappling with around the country is this racial injustice, particularly around uh, the police shootings and the tragic deaths. I think that you all had a task force, if I remember right, where you were recommending continued research around the police and, and and people in crisis. And I believe that you're you're in large part leading some of that effort. How's that going? what 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 issues are you finding? And, and what are you hoping to do in your community to address some of that?
2: You know, it's been an interesting process for our community to start to engage around racial justice issues. I think it's easy for us sometimes, because of the landscape that we live in and because of some of the the dynamics within our community to think that certain things aren't happening here or that we don't have issues to address and it's great. And like, isn't it so wonderful to live here? And like, life is just awesome. And so I've been really pleased that there has been pretty widespread recognition that we need to start investigating issues of racial justice in our community. We have chosen to start really slow, which I think is the right step for us at this moment in time to to investigate all of the places where there might be work to do. So we did form a committee that was in large part spurred on by a group of community activists who brought some things to our attention and then did a great job of offering ways that we might take some first steps in this issue. So we did something that I will laugh at, but I actually think was a good idea, which is that we created a committee to understand what it is that we should ask for um, in creating a stakeholder group and an RFP. So we created a group to, to investigate the first step. And they came, you know, people from the mental health services, from substance abuse services, from law enforcement and community members, and, and from some marginalized populations within our community, and worked through a process that had its ups and downs, but they came out with some recommendations for our next steps and for steps that we might take. And I think those are going to unfold over the next few weeks and months. This group was particularly focused on the intersection of public safety, law enforcement and predominantly mental health services. And this question of um, the idea that was initially posed that we felt like we should investigate was something that's happened in other communities and that we saw there, which is when you call 911 for help, is a police officer the best person to show up at your door? Or are there certain circumstances where a variety of community responders might be able to address a situation and help a community member in the best way that they need. And I think there's a lot of interest in investigating this and that we're going to keep looking at it. At the same time, we at the county, we set two-year kind of focus areas within our strategic planning. And we, I was very excited to propose and have accepted by my board that we make equity, diversity, and inclusion a focus area for the next two years, and that we spend time both looking internally at ourselves as an organization and opportunities for growth there and challenges that we might need to address, as well as how are we looking at those things in our community and particularly starting from the place of how are we making sure that all voices are included in our policy making, so that we can actually understand what community needs are because our general participants in policymaking are pretty homogenous and often look like those of us sitting in the seats. And so what are those barriers to participation in public processes and public policymaking? And so kind of two tracks there. We're going to start with an equity assessment of our organization internally and see what action steps might come from there. As a a doer. Um, I'll say I'm a doer, uh, an initiator. It is hard for me because it's going, you know, I immediately want to jump to action steps and doing things and, you know, cha- changing things, but I am grateful for kind of the broader conversation around understanding where we are and, you know, working together to create that action plan and to an extent going slow to be able to go quickly in the future. Hmm. But it, it, it's something that we haven't, that I think we've danced around for a number of years. And so I'm excited that we are directly addressing it and that we're going to be talking about it and know that it's not something that we're ever going to finish doing, but how we create a more equitable community, a more inclusive government and address the needs of our community is only going to happen when we have everyone in our community participating.
1: Yeah, I love that. And that's a great segue because I think well before the pandemic, well before some of these long overdue conversations about racial equity, you were a, a big proponent uh, for trying to get women to the table. I think both in a campaign s- sense of getting women to run for office, but also in terms of participation in the government and being at the table. I'm curious kind of about how you got into that work and what, how, how that led to ultimately you deciding to run for office yourself.
2: Thank you. It is, you know, I, it's not a place I thought I was going to end up. I decided to run for office the first time because I was doing a a program in my community called Leadership Jackson Hole, and part of the program is that we went to visit the state legislature, and my idealistic self didn't realize that it was still a thing, that women weren't very well represented, especially in the equality state that had the nation's first female governor, and then looked around down at the members serving in the legislature and wondered where all the women were. And so I made a mistake or a good decision, I don't know, <laughs> to say to a friend, to talk about this to a friend who said, you should run for office. And when I'm not uh, working for the government, I'm a performer and a producer and run a theater company. And so I think I said to this person, like, oh, theater and politics, interesting. And they were like, there's a lot there. You should investigate that. And so I ended up running for the state legislature in a tough district, but really focusing on it zeroed in for me how hard it is for women in Wyoming and that as the equality state, we like to talk about all of our firsts in 150 years since women could vote and the town of Jackson had an all-woman town council in 1920 and a lot of firsts and then that was kind of it. And then the more I learned about what women were going through around the state, and the gender wage gap, and the uh, you know, the lack of opportunities for self-sufficiency that were really impacting women, the more inspired I got to try to do something about it and so that do something turned into running for office. Um, I was appointed to the county commission after I had run for the house, there was a vacancy, and I was appointed and have been really excited to end up in local government because, uh, it's the right place for me right now, and it's very much focused on that community problem solving, but it also has allowed me to connect with women leaders in other parts of the state and understand what women are facing in energy industry, what single moms are dealing with in very rural settings where there may be limited access to women's health care and childcare opportunities, and have continued to want to be inspired by our state's legacy, but not rest there and keep pushing to live up to our namesake. And so getting more women to run for office has evolved as a a personal mission because we can't elect more women if they aren't running. And I don't want to be the only woman in the room. Uh, I want to be in a, a room filled with women and have been able to observe how important it is to have the voices of women at the table in our decision-making and the voices of all kinds of women. And so I, you know, we talked about women's issues and they're not really women's issues. They're all issues, but the women's perspective is so important to be there. And there isn't just one woman's perspective. Like women have, there's a whole myriad of women's perspectives. And so anything that I can do to help women run for office, I commit to doing and try to talk about that with my community, inspire other people, across our state and get to work with women across the state on recruiting women to run for office and breaking down those barriers, identifying what the structural barriers are to running for office and see what we can do about that while at the same time, you know, creating the cheer squad and giving women the tools that they need and helping them move down that path to leadership because I do think it will make a difference in the future for everyone in our state.
1: I so love that. First of all, you've given me a new homework assignment. I did not know that Wyoming was the equality state. So thank you for sharing that, actually. And really interesting, that that perspective about the the first and then kind of the, the needing to pick up the ball and, and ensure that legacy. So now, before I interview anyone else, I'm going to make sure I know what their state um, model <laughs> is. <laughs> I think that's really fantastic. Secondly, uh, it, it, you know, obviously, I love what you're talking about in terms of getting, and you're right, you know, there's I hate when people assume, make assumptions about me, about what I believe because I'm a woman, right? You know, I, I hate that. I think that uh, we everybody comes with different perspectives and it's so important to have so many of those voices at the table. But we do know that women do have a, you know, are more hesitant to run for office, right? I mean, even when you were talking about your own story and that's not something you had seen yourself doing before you jumped in. So when you're talking to these women, and I know we have women listeners who might be thinking about running for office themselves someday. You know, what what advice do you give someone, particularly women, to, to think about um, encouraging them to jump in?
2: Oh, I, this feels like a question. I should have like the answer on the tip of my tongue. But for whatever reason right now, I'm mildly stumped. But I think that the main thing is because I've been talking about this so much, that you don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why I want to see more women running and more women getting elected is that The pressure that is on a woman when she does choose to run and if she is elected feels so much greater right now because all of a sudden she's asked to represent all women Hmm. um, or that she's going to be responsible for fixing things for women individually on her own and that we also know she's going to be judged unfairly probably during the campaign and as she's serving in office. And I'm making it sound really appealing to run for office right now. But, you know, I think my, my advice would be decide that, you, that it's okay not to be perfect and then start to build your empowerment team. And that definitely you should run for office. So anyone that's listening, if you're a woman, I'm going to be one of the multiple times you're going to have to hear it. Please run for office. You are qualified to do it. And then, you know, find the people that will speak your, you know, tell you the truth, but that will also encourage you and be there for you. Because I think women have the connections, the community connections, they have the passion to do it. And that often it's also just, they don't know what to do. So when I decided to run, I didn't know what to do. Like I didn't know what GOTV was. Like someone said that to me, I'm like, I don't know what that means that, The campaign piece, which in many cases I think turns women away because it might be new territory, is something that you can be taught or you can take a class and are steps that you can learn and that can enable you to cross that threshold, but that if you are passionate about your community or have an issue you want to solve or see a problem that needs addressing, that your perspective is important and needs to be there because no one else is going to bring it up. And I've been happily surprisingly refreshed often to have brought something up expecting my male colleagues to think that I'm ridiculous or to be against it when everyone's all for it no one had just ever thought of it before or it hadn't come up because it wasn't within their sphere of daily life and so I think there are more positives than not and the other thing and I'll say this as a a woman in a state that is, you know, politically predominantly led by men that I prefer to have women mentors, but that you might have to look for a mentor in men. And that there are many that have experience that they are excited to impart and support and encourage women to run for office. And so I think that has been important for me to be able to get comfortable with finding both women and men mentors.
1: I love that. And I think that's a perfect answer, actually, I, I, about, you know, starting with just not thinking everything has to be perfect, or that you have to be perfect, and that you don't have to carry the pressure. We, you know, I, I was I was actually thinking about asking you, this is a funny thing, but I was thinking about asking you about juggling being a mom, right? And being and and, and, and you've got your artistic job with the theater, which I want to ask about later, and, and, and your work on the commission. And it's like, and then I had that thought about what I, you know, am I asking that because you're a woman or am I, Would have I asked that question to a man? And it's like, you know, and, and it's, um, it's just so interesting to me that we do have so much pressure, right? We are the ones that we're assuming that we're the ones who are doing all the juggling and the balancing, frankly, because we probably are, but you know, it's, uh, it's important to, to realize that, you know, you can, you can just do what you can do, right? <laughs> you know, and you, you've got to find a place to make an impact and, and take it. And so um, I think that's fantastic. And, and one thing I just wanted to point out, you, you kind of mentioned it. And so I hope it's okay that I bring it but obviously you, you you mentioned running for the state house because of what you saw in the state legislature, but you weren't successful running for the state house. And then you ended up on the, on the commission. And I also think that, you know, you can, you can run or you can, you can take a step, right. Or do something and it might lead to something else you didn't even realize was an option. Right. You know, so I, I think that this, you know, yeah. that, 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 that advice of just kind of doing it and as your doer is really great advice, frankly. Well, and I, th-
2: you know, I appreciate you pointing that out because it was, It was a race, my first race that the odds were real long (laughs) and I knew it, but it was the seat that I was running for. And it was important, you know, in Wyoming and I think in particularly other rural parts of the country, there are many public office seats that people run unopposed. And for whatever reason at that time, and I think today still, it felt really important to me that there not be an election that wasn't really an election because the purpose of this is that... People who are going to represent you and make decisions that are going to impact your life have to go out and talk to the people that they represent and talk about their ideas and their positions and listen to their constituents. And if someone is running uncontested, they don't have to do that. And so by having a contested race, at least we were out, you know, I went door to door a ton and, you know, got to to introduce issues and ideas into the narrative that would not have been there if I had chosen not to run just because the odds were long. And then exactly as you said, never in a million years would have expected that what happened was going to happen. And it all led, like one thing led to another. And I think we can just keep looking for places to serve. And the the other thing I want to say, because you reminded me of something that I've been thinking about a lot related to, to women running for office and also what men can do to support women for running for office. And Something that I think we're starting to see more of and that I hope we continue to see is that when men run for office, they talk about some of those other things that women have typically typically talked about. So they talk about how they're managing their childcare. They talk about the fact that they have children or that they're juggling a lot and introduce that into their narrative as well. So Mm -hmm. that as a society, we are talking about that and we are normalizing all types of families, all types of ways of thinking about children, but that we're also bringing children, particularly into the public space and the policymaking space, because so many of the policies that we need to work on involve how we support families and working people, and that those aren't just women's responsibility to solve. And so I think male candidates can also help by calling it out if they see it happening that way, but also pointing it out for themselves and what they're doing. It is a double-edged sword because we know from uh, gender wage gap research that when women become mothers in the workplace, we see their income decline. And when men become fathers, we see it go up. So there's still a lot of work to do. But I think talking about it and being more open about it and breaking out of the stereotypical gender roles within family dynamics happening on the campaign trail is one of the ways we can work on that.
1: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely agree with that. I want to talk to you about another issue in terms of just politics and getting stuff done, go back to being the doer. I love that. I know that you're really active in the Wyoming County Commissioners Association. And in fact, I think you're recently elected treasurer. So uh, you're in a pretty red state. I have to assume that a lot of your counterparts around the country are Republicans. Tell me just about how that experience has been and probably in, in two ways. One, this idea of working regionally or working statewide to, to enact things. And secondly, working across the aisle and how, how that plays into your thinking thinking about governing in a state like, a, like Wyoming?
2: Yes, indeed, I am the minority party in a supermajority state. And it is fascinating to exist in that space and also interesting because it's the only thing I've ever known as a public servant. And so I was recently elected treasurer of our County Commissioners Association and have, I think, because some of the issues that inspired me to run for office were statewide issues or things that were within the jurisdiction of the state government, but the counties work very closely with the state, chose to really get involved in our commissioners association, but also because our state and the challenges we face in terms of state funding implicate counties and also implicate the education of our children. And so I, you know, we get, we're the blue dot in a red state and it seemed important to me when I became a commissioner to not feed into that stereotype and that partisanship, if we wanted to get things done. And also that at the local level there, you know, having now worked with and met commissioners from across the state, like we have a lot more in common than we don't. And we're all working in our communities, just trying to get by, trying to solve problems with our neighbors. We're going to be held accountable by our neighbors in the grocery store And so being ideological at the local level doesn't work very well because it doesn't actually solve the problems our communities are facing. And so I had an experience right after I was elected that I'd love to talk about. So I'll talk about it here. I had previously, I had been appointed to a board that was part of the state DEQ, Department of Environmental Quality, the Land Quality Advisory Board that had political party representation requirements. And so I was appointed on this board and it is one of the advisory boards that reviews mining rules being made by the DEQ. And I had just been appointed to the commission, but had previously scheduled a meeting to go to Campbell County, which is one of the uh, counties with coal mines and other energy activities to tour a coal mine, a uranium mine, a coal-fired power plant, and some other enterprises happening there. And I became a commissioner like two weeks later went on this tour and met two Campbell County commissioners who on paper, we should not get along. Um, We should have nothing in common and could have decided to not understand each other or talk to each other, but had this, you know, I was really excited. I'd never been to a coal mine. I was curious to see how all this worked. I had never been certainly to a uranium mine. And so my husband and I drove across the state and went on this tour and spent time with these two commissioners, with their families, had dinner, and got to see how proud they were of their community and of the hard work they do to make their community thrive. And I think that experience was probably one of the most formative that I could have had early in my career as a public servant, because it was about forming bridges and relationships with people, uh, with human beings, and talking about our different ideas, but doing it in a way that isn't dismissive or judgmental of the person as another human being. And so that really instilled for me, the importance of debating ideas and not people. And of, you know, start with what you have in common. Um, Don't lead with the issue that you're gonna be on opposite ends of the spectrum on when you're trying to form a relationship. And, you know, my time at the Commissioner's Association has also taught me the importance of humor and my community or my county can sometimes be the butt of jokes. And so I often make the joke before anyone else gets to make it and, you know, try to, to get along with people as people. And I think that's something that local government in Wyoming does really well because we do get together and we, you know, share a lot of pride of place and pride in our families and want to share ideas and work together, despite what might try to be overlaid onto us regarding partisan differences.
1: Well, I I so love all of that. And I think that in today's world where we have this feeling that there's, you know, such divisions, just being reminded about you know, about the fact that we do have more in common, which I've always believed than, than we than we do that divides us is so important. So thank you for sharing that story. I think it's super timely and super important. As we wrap up here, I would love, I said I would come back to it and it's just, it's just so fun that your uh, other day job is uh, the artistic director for local theater. Uh, any thoughts on, uh, you mentioned it, but any further thoughts on how theater and politics, you know, kind of lessons you, you take from one to the other or anything about how those intersect
2: you know, I, I think for me they intersect in that I love people and that we get to, you know, when we make a play, a group of people comes together fast and furious to do a project together, and then we go away and work on something else. And so that's probably made me enjoy the great variety of issue areas that we get to work on mm-hmm. in government. But at the same time, I think communication is really at the core of so much of we're doing of what we're doing in community building and in collaborating and, you know, in the conversation we were just having about connecting with people who are different from you. And theater is about communication. It's about a shared experience that you might have with a total stranger sitting in the seat next to you and that you come away having had something together and shared something together, which could be the foundation for something to come. And I also have enjoyed, I think some of my public service work has informed my work at the theater in terms of plays that we select or you know how the theater can help support the community working through an issue or create a shared experience of empathy because theater is literally walking in someone else's shoes. And if you can um, get people together and try to see something from someone else's perspective and that theater can serve a role in that regard for a community. And then sometimes we're there to have a lot of fun. We're in the midst of pre-production for some outdoor Shakespeare this summer. And I know our communities are excited to come together and commune and be together and have a shared experience. And so I'm excited to get to be part of that as well. But I think it is all part of community building, I feel like I just said that word 10 times, but it (laughs) bears saying that, you know, that's our, you know, our community. And I think our government is an extension of our community because it's how we can work together to solve our problems. Benefits from shared experiences and theater is one of the places where we can have shared experiences that build empathy.
1: I love it. I love it. Well, I think that that's a perfect end to a podcast. It's about politics and government being about being an honorable profession and solving problems. So, Natalie and Macker, thank you so much for being our guest today. I love talking to you and um, really appreciate you being with us.
2: Thank you so much. It has been so fun.
0: Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts, I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.